Would you all remain standing for the reading of the word from Luke chapter 1, verses 39 to 56. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. This is the word of the Lord. Happy October. It's a good month. October 1st. Um, just a note to pay attention this week. We're going to send out a, um, an email with just a financial update on where the church is at. The last one we gave was in February in our kind of member slash family meeting. So I just want to give you an update about where we, where we are now based on some things we told you back then. And um, So just look out for that. We'll send it via email. Um, this week to everybody who's on the email list. That's the only thing I have. Let's take a moment um, as we enter uh, this passage, this beautiful uh, song, uh, just to be silent before the Lord, and then I'll pray as we enter into uh, hearing and responding to God's word here. O most merciful Lord, grant to your faithful people pardon and peace 
that we may be cleansed from all our sins and serve you with a quiet mind. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. I've spent a lot of hours in the last three weeks at the baseball field. The boys, they played last fall in the Weddington Wesley Chapel Athletic Association. So we've been there for some practices and some games. Um, and I just kind of get to sit. They're too young for me to like drop them. I have to sit there and watch. I don't know if you ever watched a bunch of six-year-olds practice baseball, but it's brutal. <laughs> it's brutal. It's a brutal thing to watch. But one of the things that I, every team that they've played on, every coach, head coach, assistant coach, baseball volunteer dad is out there, and they're all talking about one thing constantly over and over and over. They're telling the kids to get baseball ready. You ever heard this? Our, Teddy's coach, this is the six-year-old team, she has this little thing where she'll go, she'll say, all right, everybody ready? One, two, three, hop. And they all, like they do, you can just watch the all 11 of them on the field just, and they put their gloves down like this. And so before every single play, before every single pitch, they're just constantly calling out, baseball ready, baseball ready. And they want the kids to bend their knees, this is in the field, put their glove down, be ready to go. Now, if you watch the six-year-olds, they're like, rolling on the ground. There's all these other things that they do. There's this posture of attentiveness to the game, physical, bodily. I want all of your faculties baseball ready, okay? trained at attention for what, a, what is about to happen, receptive, so you're ready to receive the game action as it comes to you. And the opposite of that is this sitting down, playing with grass, daydreaming. Some kids are just aloof. They're just kind of like looking at the other kids, like, what are, you, what are you doing over there? What's this going on? Oh, what's down there in the stands? They're just all, and, the, and when the game comes to them, it just passes them by, right? It's like if you hit the ball in this league, if you put it in play, like you're going to score because no one can field the ball because no one's paying attention. <laughs> it's, it's, it's crazy. And the emphasis over and over and over, every moment of being in the field of baseball is on this posture of readiness. Baseball ready. Attentiveness, alertness, receptiveness, whole body, whole mind, engagement in the game, ready to receive it as it comes to you. Today what I want to talk about is a similar but distinct kind of posture, a readiness posture. It's not a physical posture, but posture is a really, really good metaphor for this. It's a posture, a whole life attitude, disposition of readiness to God. For lack of a better term, I'm going to call it God readiness. Not baseball ready, God ready. Okay. God readiness. Attentiveness to the person in the presence of God, receptiveness to divine interaction and action. Readiness to receive the action and the grace and the mercy of God when it comes to us. And the opposite of this posture is to miss for the action, the mercy, the grace of God to go right on by you, all the way to the wall, as it were. Today's story, this little narrative section, and then Mary's song is this story of Mary, what, what Mary does after she sees the angel 
the, the angel visits her, and that's the story Mike talked about last week. She receives this amazing prophecy, and she says, okay, so, so, so be it to me, as you have said. And almost immediately, what Mary does is she leaves, and she goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth. Now, she visits her cousin Elizabeth. I'm going to leave the connection between that visit and the fact that this series is called Divine Visitation Unexamined. You can go and think about that later. Um, but this is what it says in verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste. She's like, I saw an angel. I got to tell somebody about this. She runs, I guess, out into the hill country to the town of Judah, and she enters the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. I just want you to get the timeline here. Right? In the beginning of Luke, Zechariah sees an angel, and then Elizabeth becomes pregnant, and it says in verse 24 that after this happened, Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my approach. And then when Mary talks to Gabriel, Gabriel says, your cousin Elizabeth is six months pregnant. So Elizabeth gets pregnant, six months go by. Five of those, Elizabeth is just out pondering what is happening to her. And then Mary runs out into the hill and goes into her house. She gets pregnant as well. So both of them are now pregnant, and this is what it says about their time together in verse 41. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And verse 56 tells us that Mary stayed there for three months. So this is Elizabeth in the third trimester and Mary in the first trimester. Jesus is six months older than John the Baptist. Mary has been pondering what has been told her by the angel. Elizabeth has been spending five months pondering this. What do you think they talked about for these three? Can you imagine the conversations? I think there was a lot of just sitting across from each other going, what the heck is happening to us? What is happening to us? I, just, I can't even begin to imagine the kind of interaction that they're having, both sitting there pregnant completely unexpectedly, both having seen angels. I mean, this is crazy. This is God has come and visited them, and they are saying, what is going on? But all that we are told about, the, we're summarized, there are three months of interaction in just this little dialogue where Elizabeth is just amazed at what is happening, at what God has done. And as we come out of that interaction, we get this beautiful song called the Magnificat. It's modeled on, on the, the Psalms. It's Mary's song. It's central in liturgical practice of the Christian church all over the world. This is an amazing, it's an amazing song. It's there's a lot of echoes in here, as I think Mike mentioned this next, last week, to Hannah's song in 2 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 2, where Hannah praises God after uh, receiving ch child. And Mary starts out like this. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Do you see Mary's posture? This is not just a thing she's doing. She's not just praising God as a thing or as an action. Her entire being, 
is rejoicing and praising God. And this posture is a necessary precondition to receiving God's mercy and grace. This posture of God readiness. Without the posture, we'll miss what God is doing, the, the, the salvation that he's bringing. You see, God's salvation is a free gift. It's available to everyone, but it's only received by those who are ready to receive it. And we're going to see that today really clearly. And I want to explore in Mary's song, there's so much we could talk about here. Maybe someday we'll do an entire sermon series just on this psalm. Explore, I want you to explore today three aspects of this posture of God readiness that we see in Mary's song that comes out of, I think, comes out of three months of her and Elizabeth thinking and talking and praying and receiving from God. And what do we get? We get this description of what it's like to be on the receiving end of God's mercy and God's salvation. What is it like? How do we have to posture ourselves to receive that? And so I want to give you three aspects, briefly, each one, and leave you to kind of ponder and wrestle with them in your own life. The f and I'll tell you them right now. The first one, I don't always do this. This is a little treat. I give, give you my points ahead of time. Uh, first, the first aspect is honesty about ourselves. The second aspect is honor towards God. And the third is humility in all things. Honesty, honor, and humility are this description of the, po the posture that we hold ourselves in in order to receive what God is giving. Listen to what Mary says in verse 46. Should we get here? My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. I think there's, she's incredulous. For he who has my, is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. This word, humble estate, it's a very important word in the Bible. Humble estate. It means low status. It's the same word Jesus uses, as you might recall, in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28, when he says that he is humble and lowly. It's the word lowly. Mary says, he's seen my lowly estate. And last week, Mike said, Mary actually did have a low social standing, right? She hadn't done very much yet. She's defined as a virgin, somebody who hasn't done something. She's, she, she has this low, she actually has a low, unaccomplished, insignificant social kind of and personal standing. But you can, you can see in her response here that she is genuinely acknowledging that, right? There's a difference between having a low estate and acknowledging your low estate. Like she's understanding and recognizing this low estate and there is genuine surprise in what God is, has done for her because she wouldn't expect it, right? And she says, all generations will call me blessed. And she didn't know about Protestants, unfortunately, who seem to ignore Mary mostly. But <laughs> most, most branches of the church have called Mary the Blessed Mary, right? She's blessed according to this. God has done a great work for her. And so what's going on here is Mary is not just the fact that Mary has a low estate, but Mary's embrace of that low estate, her recognition and her honesty about herself. And this posture, if we're going to be postured to receive God's mercy, it's a posture of ongoing honesty about ourselves. 
You know, C.S. Lewis said at one time, humility isn't thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. And with all due respect to C.S. Lewis, and I named my child after him, so there's quite a bit of respect there. I disagree with them. I disagree with them. Humility is thinking lower of yourself. This is really clearly all over the scripture. You realize this in this amazing passage in, in Philippians. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, what? Count others higher than yourself. It's like humility means counting yourself lower. So it's, sorry, C.S. Lewis. Paul said this, so I'm going to go with it. Right? He continues, have this mind, this posture among yourself, which is yours in Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. How? By bringing himself lower. Jesus has to take on lowliness. For you and I, it, it comes standard. Like Lowliness comes standard by being alive in the world as a human it comes standard. And here's the thing about human nature that you probably already know, is that whatever you think of yourself, the truth is probably less flattering than that. That's how human nature works. We are masters of self-deception. We are way more than we'd like to admit. It's very difficult for us to be honest. We, we fancy ourselves higher than we are. This is ironically called posturing and they have a posture of honesty and humility. Posturing is the opposite. It's where we pretend, puff up, pretend to be more than we are, where we inflate ourselves, where we overestimate, where we ignore those blind spots, where we make claims about ourselves. I'm this kind of person. I'm that kind of person. People do this all the time. <laughs> I do this all the time. And more often, as I'm, I'm hearing myself say, I'm this kind of person, I'm like, I get that back. I want that back. I want that back. The other side of this is the false humility that claims we're nothing at all, right? That's actually a kind of reverse pride, reverse, <laughs> reverse raising of ourselves. And the thing about being dishonest about ourselves is that it creates a barrier to God readiness. Right? God works his salvation for those who embrace their lowliness. This is a precondition. You want to receive the grace of God, you have to think you need it. You have to be willing to be open to acknowledging what it is that you are. This is the little, like, when you apply for financial aid, you have to admit that you need financial aid before you apply for it. This is the basics. We need to admit who we are and what we are. And there's this way that we as Christians, we do this on some kind of meta scale where we're like, yeah, I'm a sinner in need of Jesus' grace. And that becomes this theological truth that we put on the shelf. But what about this day-to-day -day embrace of the reality that today I am worse than I think I am and that I need the mercy of God today? Honesty with who we are and what we are. We talked a good bit in our sermon prep meeting this week about um, how, to, how to know about some of these things. What do these look like in real life? And one of the things that came up was that we, we are so quick to take offense we get, we get offended. We get hurt when other people say things about us and to us. And so often, the reason we're taking offense is because whatever has happened, whatever that person said, runs, runs counter to the way that we would like to think about ourselves. 
or about the world. We get defensive. We find our, a need to rush and defend our, our action, or defend our integrity, defend our... Why do we find the need to do that? Because we struggle to be honest about the depth of our need. And so I ask you today, do you, do you know yourself? Are you willing to know yourself? Are you honest on a day-to-day basis with, about yourself, with yourself? Where do you feel the need to defend yourself? Just look back over the last month. Where have you felt the need to defend yourself against accusations, against... Those are the areas where you need to learn to be honest. And are you being honest about yourself to yourself and to others? This is a precondition of receiving God's mercy, being honest about ourselves. That's the first aspect of a humble posture. You see Mary, I have a low estate, ready to receive the mercy of God. That's the first aspect. The second aspect of God readiness posture is honor towards God. It's just very simply put in by Mary. His mercy is for who? His mercy is for those who fear him period. (laughs) Conversely, his mercy is not for those who do not fear him. It's available to those people, but they don't want it. The only people that are prepared, ready to receive the mercy of God are those who fear God. And another word, a better word, I think, in really understanding what this is about is the word honor. Those who honor God. Eugene Peterson translates in the message this verse as, his mercy flows in wave after wave on those who are in awe before him. The ones who are not in awe before him are just searching for something else, missing the action that God is bringing right to their doorstep. And you maybe think this point is unnecessary because we're Christians and we're here on Sunday, so therefore we honor God. And I'm not sure that that's necessarily something we should conclude. What does it mean to honor God? Does it just mean to do what he wants? Does it just mean to come to worship, to read our Bible, to avoid bad sins? Like, what does it mean to honor God? I think the best way to get at this is just by analogy to the way we honor one another. I was thinking, if, if I want to try to honor Kristen in our home, what, what does that mean? Does, do I just reduce that to doing what she wants? That's not honor. We try to reduce this, like, what are, the, what are the four check boxes I can do to be counted as honoring? It's missing the whole point, right? The honor comes in this attentive to her presence and her needs and her desires and her preferences, this awareness on a day-to-day basis. Honor is not something that you, like, do and then set on the shelf and be like, all right, I honored, now I'm done for the month. Like, this is an ongoing way of being in relationship. And that's what it means before God, recognizing a higher position It's actually interesting. Paul talks about obeying parents, but both in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, the commandment is honor your parents. Honor is kind of this relational way of interacting, recognizing someone's presence and person and preferences and position. And that's what's being invited to us here. To receive the mercy and grace of God is to look at his position and give him honor on a moment-by-moment basis. And in our church in our theological tradition, which has a very high theological view of God and his power and his sovereignty, 
um, we get lulled to sleep because there is a difference between having a theological high view of God and a lived-in reality of honoring God. Those are very different things. Right? Honor is not a theological position. It is a whole life posture. <laughs> and I think we miss this. Mike pointed me to Psalm 107, which if you have time today or this week, go read Psalm 107. The last verse in Psalm 107 says, Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. And these things are a list of God's works and his mercy. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. The word attend is the word shamar. It's the same word from the shema, meaning listen, hear, pay attention. To honor God is to be fixated on what God is doing, attending to it, paying attention. What does a daily life of attending to God look like? It's a question you need to ask yourself. Attending to his presence, that's what it means to honor God, is to be attending to him and his reality. So the first aspect of God readiness is this honesty about ourselves, about our need. The second is honor towards God and his ability and his willingness to provide that mercy. And finally, and most difficultly, humility, a humble posture towards the world around us. Verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. You see, God's visitation is a visitation of mercy and salvation, but it's not good for everyone. You think of, it's hard not to think of the Tower of Babel when you read this verse, having been scattered the proud But what's most interesting to me is the specific reference to the proud in the thoughts of their heart. Pride is not a thing we do, but it's a posture of our hearts. It's a, it's a posture of turning away from the mercy of God and into ourselves. I've been reading this year the author um, Flannery O'Connor's 20th century um, novelist and writer, um, she wrote a bunch of short stories and then a couple of novels writing in the, the early to mid-20th century in the South. Um, she was a Catholic. And she, what's amazed me reading her stories is the depth of insight she has into the way that the human heart works, especially as it relates to other people. She has this amazing story called The Displaced Person. It's a story set in Georgia on a farm the main character is like a, a, a farmhand who's been hired to live on the farm and work for, the, for the, the homeowner. And she narrates this, uh, the internal dialogue of, the, of this woman who's working on this farm. And an immigrant is brought to the farm to be a worker, someone from Poland. And then you have some hired black workers, and then you have, the, and you have a bunch of different you know, layers of people and the inner dialogue that she describes of this person is this amazing ability to look down on every single other person for different reasons. Right? The white hired farmhand looks down on the immigrant. The immigrant looks down on the black hired helper. 
The, the, the farm hand looks down on the landowner because of the way she's treated by her. She finds a way in every possible situation to look down on every other person in this story. And this is very consistent through Flannery O'Connor's writing. And it's absolutely astounding because I find myself reading these things going, oh yeah, I've thought that. And it's insidious. You don't even notice it. The way that the, the pride in our heart puffs us up. We live in an incredibly arrogant age. The real, it's, it, this is a real thing in church, in community. Just listen to our political conversation and discourse. It's arrogant. We're arrogant about our intellectual superiority, our moral superiority, our practice, or politics, or our finances. Every so often when I am reading a news article and I see a a Twitter, a Twitter X, sorry, an X link, and I click on it, and somehow I always get like sucked into the reading the comments, and it's just, the, it's the worst. It's, it's just, the worst. I have to like literally go to confession afterwards because of the way it stirs up just the pride and the anger in my heart towards other people. Just reading Twitter comments makes me hate people that wrote Twitter comments, which is itself pride. It's terrible. It's, we find ways to look down on the work other people do or where other people live or how they raise their kids or what they do with their money or the fact that they have too much money or the fact that they don't have enough money. Even within our churches and communities here, we find ways to look down on it. If you listen to, if you get together with a group of Christians for five minutes and you'll just hear criticism just a constant barrage of criticism. A lot of it's subtle, well, you know, well dressed up. But it's criticism, condemnation, condescension, dismissiveness to others. I couldn't help but read this and realize how far we are often from this state of God readiness. Humility. Like, our society is obsessed with rankings. We have the college football rankings the consumer rankings, you get to, every time you go to a restaurant, you rate the, you rate the restaurant. We're like rating everything. And we're always trying to place ourselves like just above the other person. Was, to give you another baseball analogy, as at Judah's baseball game yesterday, and we're playing this team that has a coach that's very intense about this game. He's taken this eight-year-old baseball really seriously. And our coach, is getting frustrated because the guy's like pushing the boundaries of the rules, trying to score more runs and stuff. Um, and I'm over there watching all this, and I'm like, thank goodness I don't care that much. <laughs> and then, you know, a kid goes up to bat, and he, he can tell like he hasn't practiced much. Thank God I care more than that. We've got like this constant Goldilocks thing going on, right? Okay, at least I'm not in that ditch, but also at least I'm not in that ditch. I'm at the perfect happy medium. I'm not as conservative as that person, but I'm not as liberal as that person. I'm better at this than that person, but oh, I know I'm humble because that person's better than me. Like we're always, we always rationalize wherever we are as like the, 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 the pinnacle, the perfect balance. It's pride of heart. It's pride of heart. At least I'm not like those people. Man, who are those people for you? 
That's worth some investigation. And what's sobering is that all of these thoughts that crowd our daily lives, that crowd our inner dialogue, you know what they do? They crowd out space in ourselves for the mercy of God. They crowd it out. And what Mary says is that when God visits people who are in this space of criticism and condescension and condemnation, they're going to be scattered. They're not going to receive the visitation of God as good news because they're not prepared to receive it. It's going to go right past them. So what does a humble posture look like? Looks like honesty about ourselves and honor towards God and humility. There's no easy checklist for this, but I want to give you some suggestions just to ponder. We spent some time thinking about this this week. What does it look like? What does a person who is postured with God readiness, ready to receive the mercy of God, what do they look like? What do they do? How do they interact? Here's a few things. The first one is people in a humble posture are unoffendable. It's unoffendable. This is something that I, has long been uh, important to me, trying to learn how to do this, because I'm, I'm easily offendable. And I don't want to be. There was a guy, old guy, old, old crusty guy that I grew up with when I was a little kid. He was the guy that handed out candy to everybody after the service. And I remember one time he said to me, he said, Josh, you don't understand yourself until you can look at anything that anybody else did and say, I could have done that. He was one of these guys that had a rough life, but he knew what a humble posture looked like, and he was absolutely unoffendable. You could say, hey, you're the worst. He'd be like, yeah, I probably am. He was, he was just completely willing to be who he was, completely unoffendable. Amazing. I've never forgotten my interactions with him. People in a humble posture are non-defensive. There's no need to defend myself, my honor, my position, because whatever you think my position is, it's, it's actually lower than whatever you think it is. However good you think I am, I'm not that good. And so why, should, why do I need to defend myself? I am what I am. People in a humble posture are curious, what can I learn about you? They're eager to ask questions, eager to believe and to embrace not knowing everything. And actually having this deep-seated conviction that I don't know most things, that I'm wrong about a lot of things. People in a humble posture are non-forceful. We talked about this this week with relationships between parents and children. It's easy for me to move in and force my kids to do things. I'm a lot larger than them. And I, you know, I hold the keys to the fridge. So it's easy to use force to get what I want. That's, that's control. That's pride. That's not a humble posture. How can I be interested in what my child needs? People in a humble posture are attentive to others and to the world around them. And lastly, people in a humble posture are deferential willing to give way, to raise others up. If you read carefully back through the Magnificat, you'll see that 
this idea of being high and being low is essential. He tears down these people off their thrones and he raises up the lowly. This is the backwards, upside-down kingdom of God where those who embrace and know this posture of lowliness are actually the ones who receive the benefits of the kingdom. It's not that God doesn't want to give the benefits to those who are high, but those who are high don't want them. They don't, they don't think they need them. I want to just finish by drawing your attention to verse 53. This is the, kind of the verse, I almost wanted to spend the whole sermon on this, but I figured I'd just put it here. This is the verse that captured my attention the most reading this week. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty-handed. It just took me a while pondering this. Because rich here is not really, it's not really about being financially well-off. Rich here is the opposite of hungry. It's to be full, to be satisfied, to have what you need, to have everything. Whereas hungry is to be in need, to be desperate, to be longing. Right, a person that just ate and shows up to a party doesn't take any food away because they're full. You just remember the story of the rich young ruler. He comes to Jesus and he says, hey, what must I do to have it? I want what you have, Jesus. I want it. Jesus says, keep all the commandments. He's like, I did that. Check. And Jesus says, you still lack one thing. Sell all you have and distribute it to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because only hungry people want mercy. Only hungry, empty, desperate people need what God has and are willing to receive it. That's why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And a humble soul is a hungry soul, a longing, desperate soul, who embraces this daily posture of honesty and honor and humility. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your coming into the world, for these stories that Luke tells us, for Mary and Elizabeth and their model of this posture of humility and honesty and honor. Thank you for blessing the world through them. I pray that now you would allow us to receive what you want to give what you are offering, mercy and grace and salvation this very day. Let us receive it with a posture of humility. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.